The Alan Watts iPhone app is now available on the iTunes App Store, featuring the entire Alan Watts podcast series at your fingertips. Visit alanwattsapp.com for more information. Now, maybe two million years ago, somebody came from another galaxy in a flying saucer and had a look at the solar system, and they looked it over and shrugged their shoulders and said, just a bunch of rocks, and they went away. Later on, maybe two million years later, they came around, and they looked at it again, and they said, excuse me, we thought it was a bunch of rocks, but it's peopling. And it's alive, after all, it has done something intelligent. Welcome to The Love of Wisdom with Alan Watts. As one of the century's most eloquent philosophers, Alan Watts introduced a generation in the West to the fascinating ideas of the Far East, the wisdoms of the Orient. In the 1960s and early 70s, he lectured throughout the English-speaking world and was recorded in a variety of settings from seminars aboard his ferry boat, the Vallejo, in Sausalito, California, to keynote addresses at major universities. The author of books on Christian theology, psychology, ecology, and Eastern religion, including his classic, The Way of Zen, Watt's scholarship is deep and timeless. However, it is also his wit and playful approach to life that endears him to us today. This program was recorded in 1965 at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. In this talk, Alan Watts tackles the fundamental philosophical question, Who am I? Is the human being an island of consciousness locked up in a bag of skin, isolated from an alien world? Are there really insides and outsides? As he unwinds these questions, Watts examines the two fundamental Western myths, that human beings are either made by a celestial creator, or are the result of random collisions, flukes in a world without meaning. Who am I? Here's Alan Watts. I believe that if we are honest with ourselves, that the most fascinating problem in the world is who am I? What do you mean? What do you feel? when you say the word I, I myself. I don't think there can be any more fascinating preoccupation than that, because it's so mysterious, it's so elusive, because what you are in your inmost being escapes your examination in rather the same way that you can't look directly into your own eyes without using a mirror, you can't bite your own teeth, you can't taste your own tongue, and you can't touch the tip of this finger with the tip of this finger. And that's why there's always an element of profound mystery in the problem of who we are. 
This problem has fascinated me for many years, and I have made many inquiries. What do you mean by the word I? And there is a certain consensus about this, a certain agreement, especially among people who live in Western civilization. Most of us feel I, ego, myself, my source of consciousness, to be a center of awareness and of a source of action that resides in the middle of a bag of skin. And so, we have what I have called the conception of ourselves as a skin encapsulated ego. Now, it's very funny how we use the word I. If we just refer to common speech, we are not accustomed to say, I am a body. We rather say, I have a body. We don't say, I beat my heart, in the same way as we say, I walk, I think, I talk. We feel that our heart beats itself, and that has nothing very much to do with I. In other words, we don't regard I myself as identical with our whole physical organism. We regard it as something inside it. And most Western people locate their ego inside their heads. You are somewhere between your eyes and between your ears, and the rest of you dangles from that point of reference. It is not so in other cultures. When a Chinese or Japanese person wants to locate the center of himself, he points here, not here, here to what Japanese call the kokoro, or the Chinese call shin, the heart, mind. Some people also locate themselves in the solar plexus. But by and large, we locate ourselves between, behind the eyes and somewhere between the ears. As if, within the dome of the skull, there was some sort of arrangement, such as there is at the SAC headquarters in Denver, where there are men in great rooms surrounded with radar screens and all sorts of things, and earphones on, watching all the movements of planes all over the world. So in the same way, we have really the idea of ourselves as a little man inside our heads, who has earphones on, which bring messages from the ears, and who has a television set in front of him, which brings messages from the eyes, and all sorts of... Uh, Electrode things are all over his body, giving him signals from the hands and so on. And he has a panel in front of him with buttons and dials and things. And so he more or less controls the body. But he isn't the same as the body, because I am in charge of what are called the voluntary actions. And what are called involuntary actions of the body, they happen to me. I am pushed around by them, 
but to some extent also I can push my body around. This, I have concluded, is the ordinary, average conception of what is oneself. And look at the way children, influenced by our cultural environment, ask questions. Mommy, who would I have been if my father had been someone else? You see, the child gets the idea from our culture that the father and mother gave him a body into which he was popped at some moment, whether it was conception or whether it was parturition is a little bit vague. But there is, in our whole way of thinking, the idea that we are a soul, a spiritual essence of some kind, imprisoned inside a body. And that we look out upon a world that is foreign to us. In the words of the poet Hausman, I, a stranger and afraid, in a world I never made. And so, therefore, we speak of confronting reality, facing the facts. We speak of coming into this world And this whole sensation that we are brought up to have of being an island of consciousness locked up in a bag of skin facing outside us a world that is profoundly alien to us in the sense that what is outside me is not me. This sets up a fundamental sensation of hostility and estrangement between ourselves and the so-called external world. And therefore, we go on to talk about the conquest of nature, the conquest of space, and view ourselves in a kind of battle array towards the world outside us. I shall have much more to say about that in the second lecture. But in the first now, I want to examine the strange feeling of being an isolated self. Now, actually, it is absolutely absurd to say that we came into this world. We didn't. We came out of it. What do you think you are? Supposing this world is a tree. Are you leaves on its branches? Or are you a bunch of birds that settled on a dead old tree from somewhere else? Surely, everything that we know about living organisms from the standpoint of the sciences shows us that we grow out of this world that we, each one of us, are what you might call symptoms of the state of the universe as a whole. But you see, that is not part of our common sense. Western man has for many centuries been under the influence of two great myths. 
When I use the word myth, I don't necessarily mean falsehood. To me, the word myth signifies a great idea in terms of which man tries to make sense of the world. It may be an idea, it may be an image. Now, the two images which have most profoundly influenced Western man are, number one, the image of the world as an artifact. Like a carpenter's table or a jar made by a potter. Indeed, in the book of Genesis, there comes the idea that man was originally a clay figurine made out of the earth by the Lord God who then breathed into this clay figurine and gave it life. And the whole of Western thought is profoundly influenced through and through and through by the idea that all things, all events, all people, all mountains, all stars, all flowers, all uh, grasshoppers, all worms, everything, are artifacts. They have been made. And it is therefore natural for a Western child to say to its mother, how was I made? That would be quite an unnatural question for a Chinese child. Because the Chinese do not think of nature as something made. They look upon it as something that grows. And the two processes are quite different. When you make something, you put it together, you assemble parts, or you carve an image out of wood or stone, working from the outside to the inside. But when you watch something grow, it works in an entirely different way. It doesn't assemble parts. It expands from within and gradually complicates itself, expanding outwards, like a bud blossoming, like a seed turning into a plant. to Alan Watts from the Spoken Word Library of the Electronic University. For copies of this and other Alan Watts programs, please go to alanwatts.com on the World Wide Web or call us toll-free at 1-800-W-O-WATTS. That's A-L-A-N-W-A-T-T-S dot com or 1-800-W-O-W-A-T-T-S. The Watts website features free audio downloads, program lists, and information on Watts' life and works. Once again, that's alanwatts.com or 1-800-W-O-WATTS.